I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will be reading from verses 14 through 21. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this glorious and great passage. Grant that even now in this time together that we would marvel at the truth of the gospel. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, here we are, week three of our Reformation study and we have been this year considering the Reformation slogan, sola gratia, or grace alone. It's important to know, it's important to remind ourselves that when we speak of sola gratia, when we speak of grace alone, that salvation is by grace alone, that the assertion is not simply a fact about the gospel. We're not simply making one of many observations like it is possible to have a true sense of the gospel and jettison sola gratia. We're not simply saying that this is one observational point about the gospel. No, when we speak of sola gratia, when we speak of the fact that our salvation is by grace alone, we are making a fundamental description of the gospel. 
that it is by grace alone to construe of a gospel that is not of grace alone is to construe of something other than the gospel. Either God saves or he does not. Either we are dead in our trespasses and sins or we are not. And so when we come to passages like this, we get a glorious and beautiful glimpse at the God-saturated nature of the gospel. Now, many, many people have made many, many wonderful observations about these precious verses that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I mean, truly, there are so many uh, gems to be mined from this that uh, time would fail us. And I promised you that I would let you out early enough to make sure to go sign up for the Christmas blessings because that is important too. But understand this, when we get to this passage, when you look at 2 Corinthians 5, you are staring directly at the heart of the gospel. And the gospel is something that is increasingly fuzzy in people's minds. I would say the, as, as late as the early 90s when I read something from J.I. Packer, uh, he had published in the, in the early 90s that the great crisis facing the church was a loss of the gospel. And so the great need of the church in our age, in our day, is to recover the gospel. And, and at the time, I didn't understand what he was so worked up about when I read it. I mean, I didn't read it in the early 90s. I read it in the early 2000s. He wrote it 10 years prior, and I didn't understand, but, but now extrapolated out 10 years even further, and I see the thing that's passing for gospel, and I see that this, that this vacuous notion of biblical truth has so pervaded the church that it's left us vulnerable to all sorts of errant notions of what the gospel is, that I agree with Packer who is even now enjoying the favor face-to-face of our Lord in heaven, he was right. We need to recover the gospel. And so as we consider sola gratia, grace alone, understand that that is just the absolute essential point of the gospel, that God saves by grace alone, that every, every good thing we get from God is because of unmerited favor in the face of us deserving wrath. So this passage right here shows us the heart of the gospel and getting the gospel right is one of the absolute most important things we can do. In fact, even at our church, if you've been through our new members class, and I think many of you have, and if you're in our class now, just a couple weeks ago, you, you heard me say that, that this passage really spells out and clarifies not just what the gospel is, but what our priority as a church should be. So one of the things we say in our new members class is that when you go visit a new church, and I'm not naive enough to suspect that most of you will, will stay here until you, until you go to heaven. 
you're probably going to move on, and, that, and that's okay. God has us in a place for a season. That's fine. I really am cool with that. But nonetheless, one of the things you need to understand when you're evaluating a church, should I bed down and make this my home, is what do they understand the gospel to be? If they get that wrong, then that is fundamental mission drift. And they will not be reliable to guide you into safe harbors in times of difficulty. So our understanding is, is simply this. Uh, the word reconciliation appears in these verses in every single verse from verse 17 to the end. Reconciliation is the fundamental principle behind the gospel. Reconciliation, reconciliation, reconciliation. So what we would say is that the church's mission, that is the work assigned to us by God, is to carry out the ministry of reconciliation. I'm pulling this right from the Bible for, for the biblicists here. The gospel is the message of reconciliation, and thus our message must be, be reconciled to God. What do we mean, though? The ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation, and be reconciled to God. What do we mean by that? Well, the gospel is outlined here. And to speak of reconciliation needing to occur or that God is working something towards reconciliation necessarily tells us that there exists a state of alienation or estrangement, you might say. Reconciliation is the process by which two, part, two or more parties are brought back together to see eye to eye, to have a positive relationship again. And so the gospel here is outlined. First, this passage underscores the problem of sin. And that is part of the gospel. Part of the gospel includes the bad news, the diagnosis, okay, Way, not way, a few verses back up in verse 10, which was outside the scope of what we read today, Paul states an immutable fact. And this immutable fact is this. We must all come before the judgment seat of Christ. Every last person will come before the judgment seat of Christ, that they may receive what is due for their deeds, whether good or evil. Now that is an immutable fact of the universe, that everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, including Paul who's writing this, which is what the very next verse goes on to talk about. We will all appear so understand that the looming threat to a fallen man or woman is the pending 
impending judgment of God. And in verse 10, we learn that God indeed counts sins. He keeps track. And everyone will give an account and be reckoned for what they have done. God keeps track of sins. That is what verse 10 is telling you. But then, look down here at what the gospel tells us. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So the good news of the gospel is that even when we were estranged, alienated, and even though there exists the immutable fact that every single person is going to give an account to God and stand before the judgment seat of God, there is nonetheless an out for those who are in Christ. That when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, their sins will not be reckoned or counted to them. That brothers and sisters, is glorious. So the gospel begins with the problem of alienation, of estrangement. We are sinners. We know this. We've talked about it. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time belaboring it. But that is necessarily part of the gospel. But then we see that God's marvelous love is displayed for individual sinners. And brothers and sisters, this passage drips the sovereign, free initiative of God. Look at these words again. All this is from God, who was reconciling us in Christ to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be. Okay, this passage literally oozes God's sovereign, free initiative. Where are you and I in this process? We're not. We are absolutely not. It's absolutely 100% of, through, and by God. And, and that's just wonderful news. Wonderful, wonderful news that even though everything the Bible says about us in our natural state is so true that we are hostile and enemies and, and, and objects of wrath, that nonetheless, God was not content to leave us there. And so God was taking the initiative to solve a problem that we would never, ever in a million bazillion years address. And so he gets all the glory. God reconciles us to himself, makes us a new creation, and we become the righteousness of God, all because of God's plan, all because of God's doing. And so the gospel necessarily underscores, celebrates, and declares the absolute gracious freedom of a sovereign God to initiate work and accomplish the salvation, the reconciliation of sinners. 
That's wondrous, wondrous news. And then third, we see from here that intrinsic to the gospel is the news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus is not just the tool who came and died. You know, he's not, he's not just the sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But don't think of him as just the hammer that pounded in the nail or something. Salvation is to, for, and through by Jesus. We see in the gospel that there's this plan from eternity past to glorify the Son. And so everything here from verse 14 is all about Christ, Christ, Christ. It's the love of Christ that is controlling us because we live for him. He died for us. That means in our place, in our stead. He died for us. We live for him. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. It was through Christ that God reconciled us to himself. It's in Christ that God was reconciling the world. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. On and on and on. Christ, Christ, Christ. He's absolutely central. You live for Jesus, because Jesus died and now lives for you. And so it's so important to get Jesus right. That he is fully God and fully man, or as the fathers would say, truly God and truly man. It's important that we understand him rightly. And I didn't comment about it, and I don't, I don't, you, sometimes I, I but I recently read uh, this, the scuttlebutt on that show that, that I know is very popular, The Chosen, where the Jesus that's portrayed in that show uttered words that, that finally, for hopefully some will wake them up, that the Jesus in that show is the Mormon Jesus. He, he, he quoted lines from the Mormon Bible, from the Book of Mormon. The show is written by Mormons. And the show omits so much of what Jesus actually said. Brothers and sisters, if I take half of what you say and throw away the other half of what you say, you would become angry at me for falsely representing you. There's not a person in here who would, who, who would take exception to that. But yet that show is taking half of what Jesus said and throwing it away. And then putting things he didn't say into his mouth. It is not faithfully representing Jesus. But why are we so want to misrepresenting Jesus? Because of our sinful nature. We think, we think we're wiser than God, that a misrepresented Jesus is still some Jesus, and that's better than no Jesus, but it's not. It's actually worse. It's actually anesthetizing it's inoculating. It's worse than no Jesus. It's so vital to get Jesus right. And the fundamental thing is that you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Any notion of Jesus that omits the fact that he is the judge at the end of the day is not the Jesus of the Bible, but key Key to understanding the person, the work, the coming, the dying, the raising is in the prepositions. As Martin Luther would say, prepositions 
are the key to the gospel. And I would say prepositions are key to propositions. But prepositions are so important. In verse 21, it says, for our sake. And that's, and that's true. That is true. But I think it's a little more punchy to translate it literally the way many versions do. So, for example, I like the NIV's translation better. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. For us. In other words, the sinless one, the one to whom sin was as naturally foreign as India is to me, he on the cross took our sin. Our sin was credited and reckoned to him with the effect being that we are counted free. And that the righteousness that he had merited throughout a life of faithfulness is now reckoned and credited to us. You see, the for us indicates the substitutionary nature of the atonement. He did not come to just be your good example. He did not come to inspire thoughts of the divine. He came to be your substitute. He came to take your place. That cross, I deserve to be nailed there. There deserve to be a million crosses with each of us nailed to them. Jesus came to take my place. So that when he died and said it is finished, that means my, my, my salvation is accomplished. The debt's been paid. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. No, notice, here's, here's, the, here's the crazy thing. It's not crazy, but it's crazy to the modern mind. We didn't even ask him to do it. That's what taking the initiative is all about. He loved us to such a degree and in such a way that without our desire, without our, without our impulse, with nothing from us, he did it and then gave it to us as a gift. He's our substitute and that results in a change of status where we are now reconciled. We have, we have been brought back into right relationship with the Father. You see, the mission of the Father in and through the Son was a success. And so now, in Christ, we have peace with God. Not just the peace that exists between, like, I don't know, us and, who's an ally? I don't know, us and Japan or something. Not, not like that, no. We have peace with God that results, that results in us being adopted into his family. That's awesome. And so we have all the precious perks that go with being a member of the household of God, which is why we can approach the throne, because we are his sons, we are his daughters, we, we are his children. And all that comes from that change of status in which we are reckoned righteous by the, by the merits of Christ applied to us. 
And that means that we are new. When the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you and indwells you, you have been made a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter says. And that's glorious. And so now the Holy Spirit has brought new life into you. And he remains steadfast and fixed. And he works in your life to flesh out and bring about all the glorious things that Jesus did for you. And you didn't ask for that. But that's what God gives. That's what God does. Because God is gracious. He doesn't wait around for the corpses to rise and speak, save me. No, he knows a corpse will never speak, so he does it. So brothers and sisters, the heart of the gospel is right here in this passage. Love it. And remember that when we preach and proclaim, when we celebrate the gospel, we are celebrating nothing less than the fact that while we couldn't have cared at all about God, so blind and oblivious to our, to our pending damnation that he nonetheless did it and brought us to him. And oftentimes the only time we're even aware that when we're first made aware of the fact that we were in so much trouble is when he has received us and he shakes those blinders off to bring us into awareness of the fact that, oh no, you were this far from eternal destruction. Whoa. But our God is gracious just like that. So when we hear the gospel, you really hear grace alone. God and his initiative and his sovereign, free goodness has done all of this and he gives it to us. That is glorious. So when you hear the good news, you are celebrating the fact that salvation is by grace alone. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the glorious truths of the gospel that we were lost, we were dead, we were enemies, and that you have made peace and you have adopted us, you have reconciled us to yourself and that the son was willing to do all of this. Thank you, Jesus, thank you. Help us to think of you rightly, to preach you truly and to glorify you fully. Thank you for the freedom of grace. Thank you for the glorious mercy of grace. Help us to walk in awe of it. Thank you. It's in your name, O oh Lord, that we pray. Amen.